Today's episode is being sponsored by Hotel and Gastro Union, the largest professional association in the Swiss hospitality sector. Representing over 20,000 members, the Hotel and Gastro Union is dedicated to promoting fair working conditions and improving the social, educational, and professional prospects of everyone working in the Swiss hospitality industry. Contact Hotel and Gastro Union at www.hotelgastrounion.ch to learn more about their mission and how they can support you. Join them on their journey by following them on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at Hotel Gastro Union and discover how they are shaping the future of Swiss hospitality. Good afternoon. Welcome to Fifty Shades of Hospitality. Today we're interviewing William McKay. William, could you please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your career in hospitality? Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Like most people, I suppose I could talk endlessly about myself. Everybody likes talking about themselves. But the, the essence of the story is that I grew up in the UK. I went to the University of Surrey and got a degree in hotel management from the University of Surrey in 1975. I then went to work at a very small but but exclusive hotel in London uh, called the Connaught, where I worked largely in reception for five years, uh, and then moved to the United States in 1980, worked briefly at the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco as a management trainee in food and beverage, and then switched to Four Seasons, who were then a largely unknown company, but had just acquired the Clift Hotel in San Francisco. So I went to the Clift and became food and beverage director and then enjoyed a career of 34 years with Four Seasons, both in North America uh, and Asia. Uh, In North America, I worked at, um, as I said, at the Clift, then the the Olympic in Seattle, uh, did a takeover of the Ocean Grand in Palm Beach, which became a Four Seasons, and then went to the Four Seasons in Los Angeles, where I also became a regional VP. Uh, and was there for seven, I think, seven and a half years before moving to Asia, where I went to the opening of the Four Seasons Hotel in Hong Kong, uh, which was a, an incredible experience. And I was in Hong Kong at a, at a, during a golden period, opened the hotel there in a very, very strong market, and then became a regional vice president in Hong Kong, responsible for several other hotels, and ultimately became the president of operations in Asia for Four Seasons, based both in Hong Kong and then Singapore, and then retired from Four Seasons, and then got a little bit bored and was approached by Shangri-La, and so went to work for Shangri-La, first of all, as an executive vice president in charge of brand, wellness, and operations in Europe and North America, uh, they then transferred me to London and I became the executive vice president of the Middle East, North America and Europe um, and did that for three years and then retired last year. And since then have been doing some independent consulting, which I've much, much enjoyed. But the business has been very, very good to me. And of course, I've just seen, like all of us, have just seen massive, massive change in many ways over the 40, 45 years that I've been in the business. So just quickly, what are these big changes that you have seen? For you, what are the biggest changes that you've seen in the hospitality industry? Gosh, well, I I would start answering that by saying that in many ways, hospitality is always going to be hospitality. You know, it is about one person relating to another. 
And it always starts there. It doesn't end there, but that's where it starts. But I, I mean, I think that there are a number of buckets, for example, that you can talk about in terms of change. One, obviously, is the whole issue of technology and what that's done, how that's changed things in, in many, many ways, whether it's distribution, whether it's about how people book hotel experiences, and then the enabling of the guest experience. I mean, even in terms of what's on the television when you go into the room, whether you have a guest directory, whether you have whether you order food through a QR code, then the fact that telephone switchboards these days receive very few voice calls, but a large number of text communications, then the whole issue of 24-7 service, how that has then completely morphed into a, into a 24-7 existence. And then the whole issue of data in terms of how we run the business. So technology has been an enormous change. But there's all, there have also been big societal changes which have impacted on many things. You know, there's much, much less formality than there used to be. I mean, when I started in the business at the Connaught in London, we all wore tail suits and stiff collars that were fastened by studs, if you can imagine. Well, the only stud you see in a hotel today is through somebody's nose in the bar. You know, <laughs> you know never mind, never mind on, a, on a collar. So the whole issue of how people are addressed and how we behave, and there was a distance with people that we were expected to maintain. Now, the whole issue of creating an emotional connection with the guest is a major part of what, what hotels are selling, especially in resorts and transient destinations. And that there are many, many societal impacts on how we, uh, both on who's staying in the hotel, who works in the hotel, how people behave. At my age, I mean, I don't know if you've heard the term midorexia, but it's talking about how older people want to behave like younger people. I remember my grandparents at my age and thinking they were positively ancient. Well, I suppose people always think of people who are 15 years older than they are as positively ancient. But, you know, before I was talking to you this morning, I went to the gym. You know, I'm very careful what I eat. I'm nutritionally aware. There's that societal change. Then a third bucket of change that, that I would think about would be business. That has a number of components too. I mean, one is just the structure of how we do business in terms of third-party involvement and management companies um, versus ownership companies and all the change that that's brought about. Once a hotel is purchased from an original owner, very often it's bought as a business transaction by people who want a business return. They then employ asset managers who have to be negotiated with rather than automatically placated. And when I started in the business, we were great people pleasers. And for sure, that's a major, major component of what we all do when we work in hotels. But once you start dealing with asset managers, you have to learn to negotiate and sometimes, frankly, argue. So teaching people negotiation skills and how to argue constructively becomes a very, very important component of what we do. So even internally, too, you know, I think I was the last of a generation. You know, if you think of soccer teams and you think of the managers like Ferguson or Arsene Wenger, 
These men were dictators in their own clubs who controlled every aspect of what went on in soccer club. I think I was a little bit the same. I was the last of a generation who really was the CEO of his own organization when I was in the hotel. And even internally now, many companies have become matrix organizations. And it's very, you know, there's a lot of clustering of functions, particularly in sales and marketing. There are shared services functions. So because in many ways, the business has become much more sophisticated. You know, if you think of something like revenue management, for example, there's a real specialization in revenue management that no individual property is likely to be able to afford. So that ends up being clustered. So the idea of a general manager sitting in the hotel saying, I'm in charge of absolutely everything, you know, and I'm going to tell the corporate people that they're not allowed in my hotel unless they do what I tell them. This is completely finished. And those kinds of skills in how to collaborate in terms of an internal organization have become much, much more important. So the hotel business has, has finally caught up in many ways with what's been going on in consumer products and many other areas of, of business. Um, it's finally caught up and become much more complicated. So those are the three large buckets that I would say have, have caused major change. Technology and what that's done to the guest experience and how we run the business. Then the, all the issue of societal change with the lack of formality, what customers want, how customers want to transact with us. And finally, the whole issue of the business um, and how that's changed the role of hotel people in how they have to relate to people who own the business. And do you think that these major changes have made the field a little bit fragile? Do you think that we've lost maybe some of the quality? We know that there are lots of uh, staff shortages today. A lot of people are not as attracted to going into hospitality. You think that maybe these change, there were too many changes, that the changes were not in keeping with the whole idea of hospitality? How do you see that? Well, it's no good being like King Canute sitting at the, the surfside trying to hold back the tide. I mean, the world is changing around us and you either adapt or you die. President of the Royal Society in the UK, I think it was in 1875, said heavier than air flying machines are impossible. Well, what good does that do anybody? The world is changing around us. The only change is inevitable. Survival is optional. One of the main tasks of any leader is to translate the external environment un into the cozy world of an internal environment. In human beings are inherently resistant to change, but leadership is about change. So has it changed hospitality? Yes, it has. But people are changing too. Many people today actually don't always want to transact with human beings. You know, you see people, we all, we all have the experience of walking around and bumping into people on their phones. You know, I mean, to walk onto the, to London Bridge Station from where I live is a hazardous exercise because everybody is looking down at their phones and you have to sort of weave your way around these people. And the reality is that the way these people live their lives is very different from the consumers of yesteryear. So one can regret the fact that, that, that that's happened, but it's, it's what is, and it's up to us to adapt. As far as shortage of staff is concerned, I graduated from the University of Surrey, I think in 1975. 
Well, the reality is we were talking then about how difficult it was going to be to find staff. You know, it's a little bit like listening to people today saying how impossible it is to buy a house. Well, that's true. But that was the same thing that was being said back in the mid 70s. So finding staff has always been a challenge. And in some ways, I think it's a good thing that as employers, the hotel business has had to up its game in terms of really being, think about being a really attractive place to work and giving people a vested interest in the business so that people want to be in the business because it's a fabulous business with many, many opportunities. But the way people were treated in the past very often was not defensible. I mean, it never happened to me, but I remember seeing somebody at the Connaught Kitchen in 1975 when I was a management trainee being thrown into a pot sink. Well, good God. I mean, if somebody was thrown into a pot sink today for putting too much salt into something, you know, the, the, the chef would not only be out of a job, he'd, he'd probably be in front of an employment tribunal, if not the European Court of Human Rights. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I read in yesterday's paper, for example, Noma in Copenhagen, which was an unbelievable experience, but got to charging a staggering amounts of money for, for sort of insects on toast and, and things. But Noma was dependent on 100 people, many of whom, you know, for I think 40 people dining. And of those 100 people, I, I'm not sure what the number it is, but a significant proportion were unpaid interns working very, very hard just to get on their resumes the fact that they had worked at NOMA. Well, that kind of employment practice is over and it's finished. And I think that, honestly, I think that's a, a good thing. But for sure, managers today and owners today, if you want to both attract and retain good people, have to make sure that the working environment is positive, that people are listened to, that the culture around them is appropriate, and that they, they are listened to because Gen Z, as we all know, wants a say, and that they have, they have clear career plans. You know, in my day, we were just told, well, keep working, and when we think you're ready, we'll tell you. That's not at all competitive in terms of today's potential employees. So in many ways, I think this pressure is not a, is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. No, I don't think so either. Now, I have another question for you. You've been in many leadership positions over the years. What kind of qualities do you think a really good manager, a really good director, a really good leader needs? There have been, I mean, long books written about, about this, honestly. But leadership starts with trust. There's an old saying, you know, that leadership is an affair of the heart, whereas management's affair of the head. Leadership starts with trust. Basically, there are two aspects to it. Um, one is, first of all, you've got to create the vision and know where you're going in order to lead people somewhere. But then you have to engender a level of trust that you can rally people and energize them towards that future. So in my mind, it starts with trust and st trust starts with credibility and being believable. There are many, many aspects to that and role modeling certain kinds of behavior is critical. You have to be honest. You have to be seen to be fair. You have to be forward-looking because leadership is very much about bringing the future into the day. You have to be externally focused because it's about 
bringing people internally to understand the external environment, translating the external environment in. It's about being empathetic, being kind, being inspiring, being caring, being competent, because nobody's going to be motivated by working for somebody who is not clearly competent. It's about being decisive and having good judgment, and then also being able to handle a crisis. I mean, today it was in the news that, that Jacinda Ardern has resigned as the Prime Minister of New Zealand. And I think she was an outstanding leader. One of her major planks was the fact that she dealt with the pandemic so decisively in New Zealand and so well. At the same time as she preached a leadership model that was based on kindness and empathy. So I think that, that kindness and empathy are, are major issues for people who want to lead people. Because the reality is that, that as much as the rationalists will want to believe that people are analytically driven, almost everybody is actually emotionally driven first. And then they will engage their analytical faculties. But unless you can appeal to people emotionally, you're not going to get very far with all the data and all the rational argument in the world. I mean, there are lots of quotes about leadership, but one of my favorites was always General George Patton. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he said, we herd sheep, we drive cattle, and we lead people. And I think that's, that's true. Or if you think back to Robespierre, that's what, 200 years ago? And, and he said, again, correct me if I'm wrong, a leader has two important characteristics. First, he's going somewhere. And then second, he's able to persuade other people to go with him. So, so leadership is about a lot of things, but it's, about, it's a combination of having the vision and knowing where you want to go. And then how you engage with people to stimulate followership so that they will be on the journey with you. Absolutely. One of the other questions I wanted to ask you is, how do you perceive the different cultural differences in all the countries that you've worked in. I mean, you've had such an interesting career working in Europe, working in the United States, working in Asia. What kind of differences did you notice and how was that experience for you? Well, you know, my parents were Scottish and the Scottish always believe, you know, there's that old saying, that Robbie Burns saying, that a man's a man for all that. And I think that's largely true. I think most people on the globe want the same things. They want security. They want a future. They want respect. But there are undoubtedly some cultural differences. I mean, this is probably a fairly controversial statement. In the places I've worked, I would say there are two places, perhaps three, where people really think differently and two that stand out. The first is Japan, where basically... Uh, putting it very, very simply, face Trump's factual truth. And it can be very disconcerting to somebody in the West to go to Japan and have somebody tell you that white is black because we are protecting the boss because the boss has said that white is black. That can be very disconcerting. So the Japanese do think differently, um, but they're incredibly honorable, incredibly hardworking, uh, once you understand that that cultural nuance. Another group, this will make you laugh, but in my experience that does think a little bit differently um, are the French. And I've dealt with the French uh, both off and on 
both as, as chefs managing hotels in France and that extraordinary ability the French have to be binary, where all somebody is the best thing in the world, or is a disaster and a catastrophe, you know, and there's very little in the middle. That's not always easy to, to, to manage. Um, most societies in the world are collectivist and communitarian, whereas the United States is more individualistic. In the US, we celebrate the conquering hero, whereas in many cultures, especially Asian cultures, people are very suspicious of the concept of the conquering hero. Even though, you know, we talk about Sun, Sun Tzu, for example, um, but Sun Tzu also were talked about leadership way back when, and this is eight, nine hundred years ago, and he talked about regarding your soldiers as your children. You know, they'll follow you into the deepest valleys if you look at them as your own, as your own sons, and they'll stand by you unto death. That's not an individualistic vision. That's a collectivist vision. So I think that actually America is the outlier in terms of this celebration of, of individual heroics, and particularly as, as organizations become more matrixed and the world becomes more complicated, I think an ability to collaborate is non-negotiable in terms of achieving tangible business results. But people are people. And I think if you can connect with people and people understand that you will, you will do what you can to be of service to them, that you observe a concept of servant leadership and not of commanding leadership, I think that appeals to people of all cultures. Yeah, especially today. I think a lot of young people are much more attracted to that kind of uh, thinking. What kind of advice would you give to people who want to get into the hospitality management field or who want to go into tourism or what, what kind of advice would you give? I don't think there's sort of easy sort of magic sort of one golden secret. You know, I'm a great glutton for leadership textbooks. And so often people want to believe, you know, it's like looking at the internet and how do you lose weight? And here are the three things you do, you know, eat more pomegranate seeds. I mean, if you look on the internet at the first thing you should do when you get up in the morning, you could make a list of about 50 things that you should do first thing when you get up. The first is to stretch. The second is to go and have a glass of, of water with lemon in it. You know, it, it goes on and on. The first is to drink animal, is to eat animal protein first thing in the morning before you eat anything. The, the next person tells you eat 16, 8 and don't eat a thing until 11 o'clock in the morning. I mean, it goes on and on. There is no one golden secret. A lot depends on what aspect of the hospitality business you want to get into. It, typically, people always think of being a non-property general manager. But the reality is that that role has changed a lot. There are many other roles today in matrixed organizations. I would say I do think that in most jobs, an ability to relate to other people is non-negotiable. No matter what job you're in, whether you're in the hospitality business or any other job. So culti the cultivation of good social skills is absolutely crucial. Even in the old days, the only person in a hotel who arguably did not need to be an extrovert was the general cashier. 
They could just about get away with, with not enjoying talking to other human beings. Maybe the credit manager, even credit managers very often relied on good social skills to get bills paid on time. And you found that credit managers actually found out who was paying the bills in major corporate customers and would have cultivated good relationships. The general cashier was about the only person in the hotel who could not look somebody in the eye and snarl at people and get away with it. Well, the world has become cashless. One of the great digital changes or the effects of the digital revolution is that we don't use cash anymore. So there are, are no general cashiers. So in a hotel, certainly, everybody has to be social. So I think that cultivating social skills is non-negotiable. But sort of joking aside, I, I would say that one of the very important things that transitions people have to make is that we start off by giving service one-on-one. -on -one. We become very good at being people pleasers, being great hospitality people who project kindness, empathy, enthusiasm, fun, humor, passion, all the rest of it. And people love being around us because we're fun to be around. If you want to get on in your career, you are going to have to leverage that and you are going to have to run the business. That demands a very different skill set. But one of the things that very often hospitality people lack is an ability or what's very often called commercial acumen. And very often you would find fabulous hotel people who were not very good at running the business and would suddenly have to negotiate with an asset manager and would be instinctive people pleasers because that was what they had learned to do. And then they had to make the transition into negotiating with an asset manager and also deal with people who were talking about commercial strategy. So the skill set would change. So people who are going to grow their careers very often have to evolve their skill set beyond what it would traditionally traditionally be. And what do you think that um, businesses can do to help you know, train, retain talent, recruit good talent? What is the employer's responsibility in all of this? What can the large companies do? It's huge. And there are, you, you mentioned two or three separate buckets. I mean, attracting talent very much depends on building a reputation um, for being a great employer. Now, that alone means a number of different things. But one of them is offering training, offering career development, having a culture where people are listened to, where it's fun to go to work. All that kind of thing is, is non-negotiable. In a way, it's easier for larger companies and it's harder for larger companies. It's easier because they can very often afford to have specialists in recruitment, specialists in training. They can afford to have better people, more qualified people doing that training uh, that will help them be an employer of choice. On the other hand, larger companies evolve an enormous amount of procedure um, that can become stultifying. And if you look, for example, at what people are saying at the moment about the National Health Service in the UK, they're all saying that during the pandemic, all the doctors were finally free to do their job and talk to the nurses and collaborate with medical teams and get the job done on the front line. And then after the pandemic, all the managers came back and then they were all having to sit in training, learn customer service skills. They were having to learn about diversity. They were having every year to get sucked into a sexual harassment training seminar. And all of a sudden, 
they were not actually spending a lot of time doing the job that they wanted to do. So larger organizations also in today's legalistic environment have to cover themselves. Uh, and a big part of covering themselves is making sure that training takes place in a variety of disciplines. That all takes time that ultimately takes away from frontline activity, which is not easy for large organizations. But certainly to be thinking of the employee experience front and center in the way that we used to think about the guest experience is critical. And But you're also, in today's world, you are going to have owners complaining that hotel people very often are not focused on the owner experience and the reality of the owner's situation in terms of wanting to make a return. So today's managers have to be extremely flexible and adaptable at balancing. And it's not always about wearing different hats at different times, although you sometimes have to do that, but that could be a trap. But teaching people how to make trade-offs, how to balance different priorities becomes very, very important for today's managers. But hospitality is still a great business. You will meet people from all sorts of cultures, all sorts of backgrounds. Now, I've been incredibly lucky and have traveled the world. I mean, I'm sitting in London. I'm going to be in Cyprus next week where I have a consulting client. I was in Hong Kong two months ago. I was in Dubai three months ago. I mean, I've been very, very lucky. And I don't think today's generation are likely to travel that much because one of the things that technology has done is facilitated Zoom meetings and video meetings, which are a challenge in and of themselves. How do you create you know, corporate followership and a sense of togetherness in a company and corporate culture? You can't do that on a Zoom call. You can maintain a relationship, but you can't create a relationship on a Zoom call. The business is going to evolve. You know, and When I was a regional vice president with Four Seasons based in Hong Kong, I was flying to Toronto three times a year at a minimum, just as a regional vice president for meetings. Well, the cost of those meetings to Four Seasons was significant. On the other hand, they were extraordinarily bonding experiences for all of us and helped us run a global company to a great degree. So today, uh, video conferencing is, uh, like many of these things, is in many ways a huge asset and in other ways a, a terrific challenge. Mm -hmm. I have one last question before we let you go. What would be your inspiring message to the younger generation uh, to instill a passion for hospitality, to get them interested? And in Passion is one of those things, like motivation. You can't teach people passion, but managers have a remarkable ability to kill passion. Managers, traditional managers, are the world's greatest passion killers on earth. Who wants to come to work to do a bad job? Almost nobody. But then they run into a manager who criticizes them in public, doesn't recognize what they're doing, who deals the credit for what an employee deserves, all these behaviors that just kill passion. So you can't teach people passion. They have it. Many people have it. Uh, people have motivation. And step one, for sure, is to teach managers how to be sure that they don't kill passion. But then how do you engender it? Uh, that that comes down to telling a story and creating a vision that's exciting to people and rallying people around a shared, a shared vision of the future. I mean, if you ask yourself, why is Ukraine at the moment resisting Russia's invasion so effectively compared to Russia's lack of progress on the battlefield, a lot of it comes down to the fact that there is a shared vision 
that the Ukrainians have that they have passion about, whereas the Russians, as one hears, are not very clear about what the goal is and certainly are not particularly passionate about pursuing the goal. So I think protecting people's passion is as important, actually, as about painting the picture that makes people excited about it. But hospitality is still a business where you will deal with many, many different people. There is something, it's incredibly varied. I mean, as a manager of a hotel, one minute you're dealing with distribution, the next minute you're dealing with a human resources issue, the next minute you're dealing with a local mayor. It's incredibly varied. And the people that you will get to meet, the people that I got to meet in my career was just amazing. I mean, people that I would never get to meet in the normal course of events. Exactly. And it's not its not the kind of profession where you're sitting around twiddling your thumbs. Oh, never. And one of the things that you learn first as a manager is management of your time. Because when you're a sole performer and an individually performing employee, you're doing one thing at a time. You're taking care of what's in front of you. When you become a manager, all of a sudden you're less than perfect because you're responsible for the performance of other people who may not be as good as you were. You've got multiple demands on your time. You know, the owners believe that you should be spending half your time just looking at numbers. The employees believe you should be spending half your time listening to them. The guests believe that you should be spending most of your time dealing with them. And juggling your time becomes a major, major challenge and a hallmark of your success if you could do it properly. But it's a it's a great business. It's still a great business. And, that, you know, when you look at a lot of people in other businesses, Many people will tell you that they hate what they do. I don't often meet people in hospitality who say that. They may hate the managers who they perceive get in the way. That's a, sometimes a, a given. But I very seldom meet somebody in hospitality who actually hates being in hospitality. It's fun. And the job of managers and leaders is to make sure that it remains fun. Excellent. Thank you so much for those final words and for your inspirational message. And we hope to welcome you back to our podcast again soon. To our listeners, I think you had a lot of really interesting information there. Thank you so much, William. It's, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Today's episode is being sponsored by Hotel and Gastro Union the largest professional association in the Swiss hospitality sector. Representing over 20,000 members, the Hotel and Gastro Union is dedicated to promoting fair working conditions and improving the social, educational, and professional prospects of everyone working in the Swiss hospitality industry. Contact Hotel and Gastro Union at www.hotelgastrounion.ch to learn more about their mission and how they can support you. Join them on their journey by following them on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at Hotel Gastro Union, and discover how they are shaping the future of Swiss hospitality.